You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Lord, you are a good God. You are a generous God. You are a present God. You are present with us. You never leave us or forsake us. You are a good shepherd. You are the chief shepherd. Lord, I just acknowledge and just know that I stand among a group of people this evening, some who are your sheep, some who are not. Some who have been won by the gospel and brought into the fold of your sheep pen, so to speak, and some who are on the outside kind of checking it out and wondering what this whole thing is about. So Spirit, I just ask that you would be very present among us, that you would illuminate the words of the Scriptures, Lord God, that you, would, that you would encourage those of us whose hearts are weary, tired, and worn out. And that you would challenge those of us whose hearts are just struggling in the bonds of rebelliousness and sin. I pray that you would shine the light and illuminate the picture of the cross of Christ and the empty tomb of Jesus and the love of our Father in heaven. Lord, for those of us that are here that know you, God, I pray that you would just draw us closer, that you would convict us, that you would continue the process of sanctification through the preaching of your word, through the study of your word, through the hearing of your word. For those of us that are in this room that are just kind of wondering why we should follow you and why we're even here, God, I pray that you would draw us close to you and that you would save some this evening through the preaching of your word. Lord, I know that I stand in front of these folks as just one among many. One person among others who is in really deep need for you. So Lord, I know my helplessness and my hopelessness without you and my, my inability to come and, and to say anything this evening that would have any value. So God, I just know that your word is priceless. It's infinitely powerful. So we just beg you to come and to speak to us. Speak to us powerfully. In Jesus' name. Everybody said... Amen. So the question I want to start us off with this evening is this. And I want you to just kind of think about this with me for a moment. Like, What value does the resurrection give to the message of the gospel? What value does the resurrection give to the message of the gospel, to our preaching, to our faith? Like, In other words, as you kind of wrestle with this type of question, if you just... Think about the message of the gospel that we claim to believe and the the message that we attempt to preach and the faith that we claim to possess. Then what is the relationship of the resurrection to those matters? What weight or influence or significance maybe or importance does the resurrection play in regards to the gospel, our preaching, and our faith. The truth of the resurrection for us has got to be more significant and important and valuable than the attention that we give it on just a single day every year where we wind up focusing more on a bunny rabbit and some candy. What does our gospel, our preaching, and our faith rest upon? When you think about the gospel message that you have heard preached to you, if you are here 
you are resting in Christ and you, you are following Jesus. You think about that gospel message which you have heard preached and you claim to have faith. Then, then what, what significance does the resurrection play in that? What does your gospel, your preaching, your faith rest upon? 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 19, the Apostle Paul says this. Follow along with me. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, in which you are being saved. Hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried, that He raised, was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I... Or they, so we preach, so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. You're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life, only we are of all people most to be pitied. In these 19 verses, Paul is saying that our gospel, our preaching, and our faith is completely worthless if Christ has not been resurrected. So Paul uses words like futile and and vain to describe our gospel, our preaching, and our faith apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, uh, if our gospel and our preaching and our, our faith is divorced or broken away from or separated from the fact of Christ's 
resurrection, the, the truth that Christ has been raised, the truth that Jesus is not dead, that Jesus is alive and well and is powerful over Satan's sin in the grave. If that truth is divorced from our gospel, our preaching, and our faith, then our faith, our gospel, and our preaching is worthless. Paul literally says, he literally says, we do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then in reality, regardless of the gospel that you or I claim to believe, regardless of our attempt to preach and to, to seek to trust in some message, if it is foreign or broken away from this message of the resurrection and the truth that Jesus is alive, he is risen, if it's divorced from that, then it's worthless than we we are to be by far the most we are the most pitiful people who have ever lived resurrection is vitally important it's vitally important for us because it's like the hinge pin of a door you think of a door and the hinge and the pin that holds the two sides of that hinge together The resurrection is the hinge pin by which the door of our gospel, our preaching, and our faith swings back and forth upon. And without the resurrection, the door does not swing and it does not hang. There is no gospel, is no faith, is no preaching. It's all worthless. It's vanity. It's not needed. It's unnecessary. It's stupid for us. There has been no resurrection without the hinge pin of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our gospel, our preaching, and our faith is worthless. In verses 1 through 5, as we dig down and study our way through this, in verses 1 through 5, we learn that, that our gospel is not worthless. It is not worthless. It is not vanity. It is not useless. It is not stupid. Our gospel is not worthless because Jesus Christ has been resurrected. He is alive. He is not dead. In these verses, Paul poses a problem for us when he says this. He says, unless you believed in vain. What Paul is alluding to is our belief in the gospel being a worthless belief in a worthless gospel if there is no resurrection. He says, now I would remind you, brothers. Hey, hey, wake up. I want to remind you of something, Paul says. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless, unless you believed in vain. In other words, Paul is saying that unless we receive this message, we, have to must, we must receive the gospel. We cannot reject the gospel. If we reject the gospel, we are thereby, therefore, rejecting the resurrection of Christ, therefore, rejecting the power of the gospel to save us, and saying, in effect, that the, the gospel is worthless to us if we reject it. Paul says, we must receive it. Stand in it. Walk by it. Be saved continually. Hold fast to it. This is a picture of somebody holding tightly to that which saves them, like a drowning person out in the middle of the water, holding on to a life jacket. Save me, dear God, please, is the heart of one who has believed the gospel which Paul is reminding us of. If we do not do those things, if that gospel is divorced from the resurrection of Christ, it's worthless. 
But what is that gospel that Paul preached that we must receive, that we must stand in, that we must be saved by, that we must cling to? What is that gospel? Paul clarifies it for all of us when he says this. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. It just reminds me that you and I cannot give what we have not received. You can't give something away that you've never received in the first place. And what Paul is simply saying is, I received this message. I was saved by it. I'm standing fast in it. I'm clinging to it. And now I'm giving to you of first importance what I received. Delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Most important thing for us, Paul is saying, is the gospel that we receive and believe and deliver to others. Paul makes it clear that that the gospel that he had received and was delivering to others and was now reminding the Corinthians of was the fact that Jesus came. He lived a sinless life so that then he could willingly die for his enemies. He could willingly die for sinful people. He's now reminding us that's what he came to do. And then, and then Jesus was placed in a grave. He was placed in a grave. He was dead. He was placed in a grave and then raised miraculously three days later. Raised miraculously according to the prophecy of scriptures. Our gospel is not worthless. It is of first importance because Jesus has been resurrected. Jesus is alive. And if you are here and you are a Christian and Jesus has spoken to your heart, then it is as though he has spoken the good news of the gospel which simply says, you can't save yourself. You can't spit shine yourself good enough. You can't prove your worth because in Christ you find all of your worth. The good news is that in Christ you and I have been saved. In Christ you and I have the opportunity to be made right before our Father in Heaven. And that, not a one-time thing, it is something that we stand in and walk in and run in. This is the way that we live our lives, clinging tightly to the Gospel. Why? Because Jesus has been resurrected. It is of first importance to us. Just as your car will not run very long without oil, so too your life will not run in any healthy direction without the gospel because the gospel is of first importance. Here's what happens oftentimes in churches and in our Christian lives. We get saved, so to speak. We hear the message of the gospel. We pray that funny sinner's prayer, right? And then we put our name on a card and then, and then we say, that was the first thing. Now I'm moving on to something more important. <coughs> Paul says, I want to remind you what I brought to you that was of first importance literally meaning this is the most important thing i could preach to you guys about this is the most important thing i could remind you of the gospel is not for baby christians to start walking the gospel is for everyone to get saved and then continue to be changed by maturing christians don't know more about spiritual gifts 
Maturing Christians continue to live in the power and the message of the gospel because it's the gospel which sanctifies you. It's the continual day-by-day walk that says, I can't prove myself. I can't make myself better. I can't gloss over it. I can't forget about it. I can't pretend anymore. I am a sinner who needs Christ. That is the message of the gospel. And he gave himself willingly for you and I so that you and I could walk in it be saved, sanctified, changed, and made holy. Be holy as I am holy, God says. How? How? How are you going to be holy? The work of the gospel being of first importance to us. Paul says elsewhere in Scripture, I believe in the book of Galatians, he says, how could, you, how could you who bought into the message of the gospel believe another gospel? How could you who believe the message of the gospel which I brought to you then turn away from the gospel to other things thinking that your activity of your life can now save you? You thought you were saved by the gospel, but now you try to save yourself by your works. Gospel is of first importance. There is no, no better things I could do in my marriage or in my friendships, or as a pastor, or in my life. No better things that I could do that would make me more holy, or more worthy, or more deserving of God's love. God's love has been lavished upon those who were His enemies. Gospel is of first importance. Have you received this gospel? Are you standing in this message of the gospel that Christ came, that He lived, that He died a brutal death, and that He then was raised three days later? The tomb was rolled back, and the tomb was empty. The rock was rolled back, and the tomb was empty. And Jesus left there. His body was no longer there, not because it got stolen, but because He's alive. We serve a living God. We serve a living Christ, a living Savior who came and lived, and bled, and died brutally in our places so that we could then receive that, stand in it, and be changed by it continually. Not hide it under a rock. Not, not, not leave it just for Sundays or gospel community gatherings, but so that day by day, moment by moment, minute by minute, month by month, year by year, every second of our lives, we could be changed by the gospel. So first importance. Because Jesus is alive. Are you being saved by this gospel? Are you standing in this gospel? Are you clinging to this gospel? Are you receiving this gospel? It's not about have you received it. It's about are you receiving it. It's not have you stood in it. It's about are you standing in it. It's not have you clung to the gospel. It's are you clinging. It's not have you heard it. Are you hearing it? Hearing the gospel every single day is Jesus, by the power of His Spirit, preaching this gospel that the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. He is risen. He is our King. He came as a suffering servant. He's coming back again a second time as a warring king to take His bride home. That's good news. That's great news. Amen? Amen. Our gospel is not worthless. It is a proven historical fact because Jesus has been resurrected. I said the hinge pin of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact that was witnessed by many other people. Jesus was crucified and he died. Then he was placed in a tomb with a big rock in front of it with a bunch of Roman guards sitting around it, protecting it. He didn't fake his death. And then roll the rock away from the inside with bloody fingers. That's preposterous. 
This time of year, you can turn on the, the, the History Channel and National Geographic and watch all sorts of heretical shows about how Jesus pretended, about how this didn't really happen. The disciples stole his body. Maybe Jesus had a twin brother who was looking around the shadows all these years. Absolute heresy is what those are. Maybe the disciples stole his body and then propped somebody else up in his place. Maybe all these other books of the Bible that were withheld from the Bible that should have been put in there, but if they would have been put in there, it would have totally contradicted everything else in the Bible. Those types of stories, you're going to see it all over the TV in this season. Why? Why? Because there are people who are darkened and alienated in their understanding, and they've been separated from God, and they've actually turned away from Him and are now making war against the message of the gospel and the message of the resurrection. Preposterous, heretical, Blasphemy. And the disciples didn't steal his body because the Roman guards would have killed him. Small towns know everybody's business. In the little town of Bethlehem never reported Jesus' little twin lurking around in the shadows. The resurrection is a historical fact, and because the resurrection is a historical fact, we know for sure, for certain. It's the word that Luke uses all throughout his gospel. I want you to know for sure. I want you to be certain. I want you to rest in the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. He did what he said he would do, and he's continuing to do what he said he would do, and he will finish and complete what he said he would finish and complete. And that one moment on the cross, it was finished and completed. It is finished and completed, and it will be finished and completed. The same power that courses through Jesus to raise him from the dead is the same power that courses through you and I's lives. We believed the gospel. The resurrection is the hinge pin of our gospel. Jesus is alive. He's not dead. And in verses 6 through 11, if you look back there, you notice this too that our preaching, just like our gospel, our preaching is not worthless because Jesus has been resurrected. Verse 11, Paul says this He says, Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, so you believed. What Paul is doing here is he's just affirming the gospel. He's affirming the gospel that he preached, not just preached by him, but also preached by them. Which means that when he says, so we preach, and so you believe, he's talking about other people who preach the same gospel. Who is Paul talking about? Who is it that is preaching the same gospel that he preached? If you look back a few verses to the end of verse 5, Paul says, He, meaning Jesus, appeared to Cephas. Cephas is Peter. Then to the twelve, the other disciples, then he appeared, catch this, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom, Paul says, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Meaning, most of these dudes who saw Jesus alive, 500 or more, roughly, right, if you do all the counting, are still alive. At the time of writing this scripture, Paul is saying, call me out on this if you want to. Send me a letter. Send the National Guard over, whatever you need to do. I'm going to lay this down as truth, fact. I'm going to say there are 500 people that are still walking that saw this happen. There were eyewitness accounts. Not just a couple of people. There were eyewitness accounts. Over 500 people, Paul says. And here's the deal. From a historical standpoint, a historical fact, if somebody was going to call this out, when do you think they would have done that? Right then and there. 
Like if somebody puts my name in the newspaper and blasts my name all over the place, it's like, Ooh, Joe did this and Joe did that and Joe saw this and Joe saw that. And if it's not true, what am I going to do? I'm going to write another article. I'm going to be like, no, that's not true. That never happened. It never happened. The reason it never happened is because what Paul is saying is true. There are tons of people who watch this happen. Then he appeared to James. Catch that one. Then he appeared to James. Jesus' own little brother. Can you imagine this? I've said this a number of times, especially when we preach through the book of James, which I still love that book. Don't necessarily love the series that I preach. Some of you love it. I think you're crazy. Specifically Morgan. I think she's crazy. But as I'm working through the book of James, I'm just thinking over and over and over again. Like, you know what this is like to have your brother come up to you and be like, hey, dude, I'm God. <laughs> Whatever. No, seriously, I'm God. <laughs> Whatever. No, really, I'm God. Seriously, like, go hurt yourself. I'll heal you. I mean... I saw this thing on Facebook one time. Like, like James is like, dude, I can't go to school today because I'm sick. Jesus is like, you're healed. Go to school. Yeah. Dang it. Dang it. Can't, can't even fake being sick and staying home with Jesus as your brother, right? It's very clear throughout the Scriptures that at some point, James had not believed. That Jesus' own family struggled to believe these claims about Him as Messiah and God. And yet, He appeared to James. Can you imagine that? Watch your brother die a brutal death like that. He's been saying, hey, I'm coming to save the world. I'm coming to be a, a sacrificial lamb. <coughs> Tear this down. I will raise it back up in three days, he says. Imagine James weighing those words and wondering. Put yourself in his shoes. And then you watch this happen. And you, you watch them seal your brother's body behind that rock in that tomb. And you walk away and you spend three days wondering, just wondering, could this be true? Not much different than any other skeptic. Not much different than any of us. We've all been skeptical of this. Right? We've all asked those questions. Eh, imagine being James and having Jesus walk through a door, walk through a wall, and walk into a room and say, hey, want to eat some dinner? Get some grub? <laughs> I mean, really? Like, what are you going to do? Get Jimmy John's? I don't know. <laughs> he appeared to James, his own brother, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely born, this is Paul speaking of himself, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The reality and the weight of this passage reminds us that the preaching of the gospel, of the life and the death of the resurrection of Jesus on behalf of sinners did not happen in a box. It didn't happen in a back alley. Preaching of the gospel didn't just come about because of a few emotionally unstable and uneducated fishermen that got together in a board meeting room somewhere then hatched this crazy fanatical plan to go start preaching to large crowds. This wasn't what happened. But this is what you're going to hear propagated and preached by the prophets on our TVs right now in this season. And I stand here tonight to combat that and to remind you that we have a hope. We have a hope in a Savior who is risen. It's historical fact. He walked out of that tomb. And you and I have a gospel that we believe and we can preach it and we can continue to walk in it. Why? Because Jesus is alive. Preaching of the gospel is not worthless. In fact, 
fact, it's infinitely and eternally valuable because the basis of our preaching is the gospel and the basis of the gospel that we preach is the miraculous resurrection of Jesus. And this resurrection of Jesus not only fueled just a handful of c- crazy people, but it actually uh, uh, fueled hundreds of eyewitnesses watched it happen they received the same message they began to preach the same message they began to stand in the same message they received the same message and then they preached it just like paul was doing our preaching is not worthless because jesus is alive he's been resurrected and the interesting piece about this text as we continue to work our way through it is this it's the realization that the resurrected jesus the jesus who is alive and not dead revealed himself not only to hundreds of other people who began to preach as they were emboldened by the miracle of the resurrection and the empowerment of the holy spirit but jesus actually revealed himself to his enemies revealed himself to his enemy apostle paul who was once known saul he was called Saul and on a road to Damascus trying to murder Christian people who claimed the name of Christ. Jesus revealed himself to him. Jesus revealed himself to his enemy who then began to preach the same gospel. Paul says this. Look at it this way. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born. We're going to come back to that phrase. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You can hear the weight of the emotion and the responsibility in the apostle Paul as he says this. He knows his story. He knows his sin. All of us, if we are not continuing to walk in absolute total deception, understand some of the depth of our sin. That's what Paul's saying. I know who I am. I know who I was. I know what I did. Yet Jesus... Revealed himself to me. Paul was once the immortal enemy of the church. By default, since he was the like, mortal enemy of the church, he was also the mortal enemy of Jesus. In the book of Acts, when you look at Jesus revealing himself to Paul on the road to Damascus, he says, Paul, he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? to simply say that if you persecute the church and if you hate the church, then what you really are persecuting and hating is Christ himself. Anybody that walks up to me and says, I'd like to hurt your wife and I hate her, is going to catch some flack. But Jesus, what does Jesus do? Jesus does what you and I don't do. He shows up and he saves Paul. He saves his enemy. Paul says that Jesus revealed himself to him who was as to one untimely born. Catch this phrase, as to one untimely born. It's almost as if uh, Paul was like an aborted baby or a miscarried baby. That's the literal language of this text back in the Greek. Paul was like an aborted baby or a miscarried baby who was born again through the power of the resurrection. He was brought back to life. He was dead in his sins. His sins had created a sort of a, 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 a room that he could not get out of with a door that was locked. It was as though he was in prison because of his sins. It was as though he was in a casket under, under the dirt six feet in the earth and could not get out because of his sin, because of his rejection of the gospel, because of his rejection of the resurrection, because of his rejection of Jesus. It was as though he was dead. 
one untimely born. power of the resurrection and the fact of the resurrection fueled, listen, the truth of the resurrection fueled Paul's path of repentance and preaching of the gospel of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul says, this is but by the grace of God. Well, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace towards me was not in vain. This is a word that keeps popping up in the text. Vain. It's useless. It's worthless. It's vanity. It's stupid. These are ways that you could render that word of vain out. And he says, His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul, Paul is simply saying this. He is saying that he didn't begin preaching the gospel because of anything he did right. Paul began preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ as an enemy of the gospel. As an enemy of Christ. Who encountered the risen Christ by God's grace. Let me think about this for a minute. God could have left Paul. God could have left him in his sins. God could have left him in that locked room. God could have left either you or I in the places that we were in our sins, yet he spoke to you at one moment the gospel. And if you're here tonight and you don't know him, then he's speaking to you through the mouth of a preacher, the message of the gospel, so that you might hear it and be saved and be radically changed by the power of the gospel and the spirit at work in your heart. Could have left Paul, but he didn't. Revealed himself to Paul, then he saved Paul through the gospel, and then God used Paul in mighty ways to continue preaching the gospel. And God's grace is not poured out upon either of you or I or towards you or I in vain. God's grace is not worthless. Yeah, we, we take God's grace for granted. We live in sinful ways. We live shamefully. There are places of our hearts that God is still redeeming. There are things in our lives that need to change. There is holiness and sanctification that must happen in our hearts as we claim Christ. Yes, God's grace is sufficient for that. Paul went to the Lord and he said, when will you take this hardship from me? God said to Paul, in weakness, my power is made perfect. My grace is sufficient for you. If there was anybody that I think in Scripture that understood the outpouring of God's grace to him, I think it was Paul. If there was anybody that understood the continued need for God's grace. Listen, when we talk about grace in the church today, we have big issues. We have a tendency to take God's truth and God's grace and then make them opposed to each other. Like there's some sort of a battle between speaking the truth and being gracious. But the reality of the Gospels, I think it's the Apostle John, I think, that said that when Jesus came, He was full of grace and truth. So if Jesus is the embodiment of grace and truth, then why in the church today do we claim that grace is something that should be devoid of the truth? And why do we claim that truth should be something that's devoid of grace? When you try to take grace away from truth, what you have in its place is this ugly monster called legalism. When you try to take truth away from grace and try to live out this quote-unquote grace thing, now you have this other ugly monster called licentiousness. 
Legalism is this idea. I've got to do everything right and get myself making myself look good so that nobody confronts me for anything I did wrong. I've got to hide it all, right? By everything that I do. The opposite of that, when you get this ugly monster of grace, which is no longer grace because there is no truth, it's called licentiousness. Now it's this, oh, brother, I can't say anything to you about your sin because heaven forbid if I do that, it might tick you off or hurt your feelings. That's called licentiousness. That's called letting things go. It's called sweeping it under the rug. you got churches that are full, full of these two heretical doctrines. And Jesus came full of truth and grace. Got to have the two together. Truth and grace. Two sides of one coin. Paul knew God's grace. Gospel is not worthless. Our preaching is not worthless because Jesus has been resurrected. Our preaching is not worthless because through our preaching, people begin to believe the gospel when we preach the resurrection. There are many people throughout the ages who have preached this same gospel of the resurrected Jesus. And the question for all of us in this room is Have you believed in the resurrected Jesus? Are you hearing this message of God's miraculous power over Satan, sin, and death? Do you see the evidence of holiness being wrought out in your heart and in your lifestyle? The power of the message of the gospel of the resurrected Jesus. Is that message of Jesus being alive? Is it awakening the dead places of your heart tonight? And my prayer, my prayer is that the preaching of the gospel this evening would call you to believe in Christ today. Preaching is not worthless. Why? Because enemies of Christ turn into gospel preachers because of the resurrection. And you don't have to look very far to find a person that once was an enemy of Christ who then heard the gospel, encountered the risen Christ, and then became a gospel preacher too. <coughs> I'm one of those guys. As God moved you by His grace from the camp of His enemies to the home of His family. As God moved you by His grace from the camp of His enemies to the home of His family through the message of the gospel. Are you so captured by the power of the risen Christ that you can't help yourself but live like Him? Talk about Him. Preach Him. Has your life been so radically transformed by your encounter with the resurrected Christ that your thoughts and your words and your actions preach the message and the truth and the grace of the gospel and the presence of the risen Christ? My hope is that in these moments that God would raise up many, many powerful preachers of the gospel from our midst. Both man, woman, and child can be empowered by the Holy Spirit through the message of the gospel as we witness to the power of the gospel among us so that others could be set free as well. And in verses 12 through 19, as Paul begins to wrap up his big argument on this whole resurrection thing, we learn that our faith is not worthless because Jesus has been raised. He's been resurrected. He's alive. So our faith is not worthless. And I think that all of us go through times in our lives where we question our faith, question what we believe, 
go through seasons of doubt and despair, moments of depression, seasons of hardship where we ask why. Why, God, did you let that happen? Why have the wheels fallen off the bus? Why did that person say those things about me? Why did this relationship fall apart? Why did that person refuse to confront the evil that was there? We all have moments in our lives where we question our faith and we question if God is still on the throne. We wonder if our faith will be strong enough to weather the storms. We wonder if our faith is logical. We wonder if our faith is merely blind trust. The reality that we must all continue to wrestle with is that our faith is only as strong as the object in which it is placed in. It's not as strong as the object which possesses it. It's only as strong as the object in which our faith is placed in. You and I don't have the power to muster up faith. We don't have the power to do anything apart from Christ. In other words, when we struggle with whether or not our faith is strong enough, then, then really what we're, what we're really struggling with is where we have actually placed our faith. What we're really struggling with is not my faith. What we're really struggling with is the object of our faith. The question that we're really wrestling with is not, is my faith strong enough? What we're really wrestling with is this, is God reliable? Is God trustworthy? He let that horrible thing happen. Put yourself in the place of the disciples for a moment, following him this entire time, thinking, man, King has returned. He's going to set us free. He's going to make war on all of those who have been evil and hurtful towards us. That's why. It's why they're still asking him after the resurrection even. Hey, are you at this time going to restore all of Israel? That's why they're asking these questions. So you and I, the problem sometimes in the way that we see Christ Faith is only as strong as the object in which it is placed in. The question that we really struggle with is not about us because the gospel is not about us. It's about Christ. Too many times when we open the Bible, we say, God, what are you going to say to me today? And I think God sits there and he says, you know what? I'm going to talk to you about me today, not you. I think we struggle with this. We struggle with this. The Bible, the Christian faith, and the gospel is not primarily about you and me. It is primarily about Jesus who came, who died, and who rose again. So the question we really struggle with is this, is God reliable? Can we really trust in God? The issue is not necessarily our faith. Our issue is our issue with God. The writer of Hebrews says this, says faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. It also says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which cleans so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I want you to notice, I want you to notice what he's saying. He, he's not saying in this text, and this is, if I remember correctly, this is Hebrews 11 and 12. What he's not saying is he's not speaking in the singular. He's speaking in the plural. He's speaking to the church as a community, not a group of individuals who walk out their own little lives by themselves. He's speaking to a community of people who continue to walk together what it means to cling to the gospel and repent from sin together. 
But let us also lay aside every weight and sin which cleans so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Don't ever look to some pastor or church leader. Don't ever look to some pastor or church leader to be the one who, who gets this all right for you. Yes, it is true. Pastors, shepherds, teachers, deacons, leaders, we must lead by example. And we must set the example. But you can't ever look to somebody else to save you or change you. It's Jesus that we cling to because He is alive. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So see, that, that doesn't say, doesn't say looking, looking to Joe, the founder and perfecter of Joe's faith. Let's say, you know, looking to Christy, the founder and perfecter of Christy's faith, or anybody else's faith for that matter. Your faith is founded, it's started, it's built, it's completed, it's perfected by Christ. Yes, you don't have a responsibility. You don't just get to sit back lazily looking at pornography every night going, oh, I wish Jesus would save me. Turn off the computer, right? Right? Don't get, don't get to be out all night like getting trashed and be like, oh, no, Jesus didn't stop me from getting... No, no, don't pick up the bottle. Don't pick up the bottle. Like, there is a responsibility for you and I. Jesus is the one that founds that faith and perfects it. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. This is what Jesus did. He endured that cross. He came. He walked to it willingly. He willingly accepted and received that cross, despising the shame, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is alive. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He's returning one day for his bride, for you and I. There's no other holy book, no other religious system. There's no other prophetic voice. There's no other moral guru or ethical code that offers what the Bible and Christianity offers because Christianity is the only voice that proclaims a risen Savior. Every other religious system, every other holy book, every other prophet, every other moral guru, they died. They died. Jesus is alive. The truth that is underscored in all of this in Hebrews is that our faith is not worthless because Jesus has been resurrected. See, Paul continues to unpack this principle in verses 12 through 19. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised. I love, I love Paul in this final section, by the way. I promise I'm going to wrap it up here in a few minutes. I love Paul in this final section. Why? It's classical, Apostle Paul. It's classical. Why? He's an arguer. Dude could have been a lawyer easily. Like, he just got my heart because I'm an arguer. Like, my, my first go-to is to argue with you. I will prove to you why I'm right and why I win the fight. It's just, it's, it's where, it, it's so hard for me. Like, it's good for me in preaching as long as I keep my eyes focused on Jesus, right? But I can tell you that this is one of the things I struggle with the most. I want to argue. Like, when, when somebody's not getting what I'm saying, I want, I, want to, I want to show you why you are wrong. And it's a sickness. Why is it a sickness? Because it's all about me. Like, you don't need me to be your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit will speak to you. Not too worried about it. He may not, he may not even speak to you about it right now. He may speak to you about it some other time. And that's fine. You know how long it's taking me to get what I got right now? Like, you know how much I'm still missing? Like, most of you know how much I'm still missing, right? I got years of following Jesus ahead of me. And, and, and that's all of us. I love the Apostle Paul because he argues so well. And in this final verse, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say, like, Paul's got somebody in his mind. Preachers do this. 
Get somebody in their mind, right? Paul's got somebody in his mind. He knows somebody in his audience has been preaching the exact opposite of what he's been preaching. He's going to win this fight. Watch him do it. Christ has proclaimed his raised from the dead. How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. <coughs> if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Apparently there were some people in Corinth who were teaching that the dead cannot be raised. And Paul's response to this is that this kind of teaching is absolute heresy because to undermine the teaching of Scripture on the resurrection of the dead is to also undermine the truth of the resurrection of Christ. And therefore, call into question the power of God, the reliability of God, the thing that we struggle with when we struggle with our faith. He knew. He knew that the preaching of the gospel is to proclaim the infinite power of God and the resurrection of Christ. This kind of heresy not only undermines the power of the gospel, which proclaims the power of God in the resurrection, it also makes our faith in God useless. Or worthless. What Paul is saying here is that our faith is not useless. It is not worthless. It is not vain. It is not stupid. Why? Because Jesus has been what? Resurrected. Jesus is what? Yeah, Jesus is alive. He is risen. He is resurrected. He holds the power over Satan and all his temptation and all his works. Sin and all of its clutches over you and I. And the grave, which is the payment or the penalty for our sin. Jesus is alive. He beat it. It's finished on the cross. Paul moves on in verse 15. He says this. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. John 3.16 tells us, God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. Those of us who would trust in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Paul says, that passage is a lie if you believe there is no resurrection. You can't believe that passage and believe in no resurrection. If in Christ, he wraps this up, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. It is a misrepresentation of God to say that the dead are not raised. It is a deception to believe that God doesn't raise the dead. If God doesn't raise the dead back to new life, then Jesus is dead. And He's not alive sitting next to the right hand of our Father in Heaven. We are left to rot away into non-existence. And everyone else before us, regardless of where they place their faith and their trust, they have rotted away into non-existence as well. <coughs> if our faith is in a God who cannot raise the dead back to new life, then we are foolish. We are foolish and we are wasting our short, little, rotting existence playing foolish games. What Paul is doing in this passage is he's arguing for the truth of the resurrection, which is the foundation of the gospel we preach. And Paul is arguing for the truth of the resurrection, 
And God's power to resurrect the dead back to new life by arguing from the negative rather than arguing from the positive. That's what he's doing. Paul is saying, hey, if you don't believe the truth of the resurrection, then your faith is worthless. The opposite argument is also true, which gives us hope. The opposite argument is also true. That's the thought that Paul is proposing. Actually, it's not just that he's proposing. He's proclaiming it. Paul is not just proposing something that would be a good idea to believe. Paul is proclaiming the truth of the message of the gospel. He's actually proclaiming the principle that our faith, our gospel, and our preaching is not worthless because Jesus is alive. Jesus has been risen. Jesus is not dead. Jesus is standing at the the, the right hand of the Father, and Jesus is going to return one day on a big white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth and lightning bolts coming out of his eyes and a tattoo on his thigh, literal or not. He's going to have a robe that is drenched in the blood of the saints. This is the picture of our warring king. The first picture that you and I must grasp is the picture of our suffering Savior who came and lived and died brutally, was placed in a tomb, and that came back to life so that you and I could believe it and preach it and have trust in him. Not ourselves, but in him and the work that he did at the cross and the power of the empty tomb. That is what we believe. That is what we proclaim. And this is what Paul proclaims for us. This is what the Spirit proclaims in your midst tonight. Do you believe it? Do you rest in it? Does your gospel, does your preaching, and does your faith rest upon the resurrection of Jesus? That's the question. Let me pray. Father, thank you for our time. I pray, God, as our musicians come forward, that you would be with us over the next few moments, that you would continue to challenge us. The message of the gospel, that you would continue to challenge us in the picture of the resurrection, reminding us that you, Lord God, are powerful over Satan's sin in the grave. And that every one of us here can be encouraged and challenged in that. Help us to just return our love to you in the next few moments. Paint this picture Christ at the cross and the power of the empty tomb. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Hey, as we wrap up our time together tonight, we'll do this the way that we usually do, which is to partake in communion together. If you're here with us and you're a believer, you do not have to be a member of our church. Do not have to be a member. You only have to have believed upon Christ. That moment for you might have happened when you popped out of the womb when you were born. That moment for you might have happened just now, right now. It might be happening for you. And that's fine. And we would invite you to come here in a moment and be served the communion elements. And as you do, our hope and our prayer is that you would be reminded once again, as I have preached and proclaimed to you, the power of the risen Christ who was bloody and broken and beaten and crucified for you and for me and for our and for us, our sins, so that we could be washed clean, so that we could be made new, so that we could be changed and transformed. This is the reason that we engage in communion together. (coughs) If you're not a believer, just ask you to stay in your seat (coughs) or come forward for prayer if you'd like. Just don't want you to engage in something if you're not a believer that has no meaning for you. We We don't buy into dead tradition or dead religion. We buy into a Savior who is alive. That means we buy into a relationship that is alive because of His power the message of the gospel. Thanks for letting me preach tonight. I love you guys. Let's worship and take communion together. Hey, there'll be a few of us here to pray for you as well. If you need prayer. You're listening to an audio message from The Well. 
a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.